0: Good morning, church. Um, as always, it's a blessing and honor to be with you this morning. Um, excited about this time of year as we celebrate this season of Advent, a season where we learn and we focus on waiting and waiting with expectation, but not just waiting with expectation, but also celebration. We celebrate Christ's birth into our world. And what a blessing it is that in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Europe, all over our world, we're celebrating for this month that Christ has come. We're celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. Or as Eugene Peterson once said, we're celebrating flesh and blood moving into our neighborhood. Last week, we talked a little bit about how Advent, the word comes from the Greek parousia or the Latin adventus, and it talks about really the second coming and the return of the king. But this time of year, as we begin the church calendar, we celebrate what a songwriter once said, "Radiance, putting on skin, and coming to Bethlehem. Around here for Advent, we usually have four themes that we focus on. Hope, peace, joy, and love. Last week, we talked about hope, and we said hope is really, in the biblical understanding, trusting God. We looked at the story of Mary, and then saying that Mary had a God of hope. And the beautiful thing about Mary is we learn together that hope is trust in God, but God trusts in us. That just like Mary was chosen by God to bring his son into the world, God chooses all of us to bring his son into the world as well. This week we'll talk about peace and we'll look at the story of Anna. We'll learn that peace isn't peace from God, true peace from God. is not just for us, but it's for our world. And true peace from God is defined defined by the fruit that we bear. Next week, we'll talk about joy through the story of Elizabeth. And then last um, Sunday, when we talk about Advent, we'll talk about love and just focusing on what God's gift to us means. Let's just open with a quick word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for peace with you. Lord, we thank you that we can know peace with each other. Spirit, we thank you that we can know peace with the world around us. We thank you, God, for calling us. Teach us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Spirit, to bear much fruit for your glory. Lead us, God, to all you have sent us to. Teach us, Jesus, to grow full of grace. Help us, Spirit, to serve. God, fill our lives with peace. God, fill our lives with peace. God, fill our lives with peace. Amen? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me in Luke. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along up on the screen. Luke two thirty-six to 38. Starting at verse 36, we read, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. One of the things in our common nomenclature, in our common culture, we have um, different understandings of peace. When we say peace, we often mean different things. For some of us, when we hear the word peace, we think about tranquility. We think about silence. We think about calm. For those of us who are blessed with children, we think about peace as that moment when all the kids are asleep. Ah, peace. For others of us when we think about peace is the absence of war or conflict. I love Canadians, I love our neighbor to the north, I love that we don't have any conflict with them. However, I've also learned that if you want to make a Canadian really angry, tell them Tim Hortons is trash. Tell them you can get better coffee somewhere else and that their donuts aren't that good. That's how you have conflict with Canadians. Or you can try my personal best. My best friend growing up was Canadian, and I always wondered, if you're really from Canada, why aren't you Canadians? If you're Canadians, why aren't you from Canada? They didn't appreciate that either. But again, that's how you get conflict with Canadians. It's possible, I've done it. But for some of us, when we think about peace, is this idea of rest. We live in a world and we have these persons that sometimes we struggle with oppressive thoughts, intrusive thoughts and emotions that just seem to overwhelm us. We think of peace as rest because we struggle with expectations, overwhelming expectations from ourselves. From the world around us, from what we think we're supposed to be. So, peace is running and getting rest from oppressive thoughts and emotions, overwhelming expectations. And even this time of year, we might be simple, living, focused brethren in Christ, but how often this time of year do we have this overtaxing busyness? How often do we ask each other, How are you doing? You say, Well, I'm busy, but I'm good. Can we lead with I'm good first? But does busyness define who we are? So peace, when we think about peace, it's maybe for us it's rest from oppressive, intrusive thoughts. Rest from oppressive emotions. Rest from overwhelming expectations you put on yourself or the world puts on you. Rest from your overtaxing busyness. Peace is rest. So for us then, peace is really closer to this idea of Sabbath where we can have a clear mind but also where we can have clear values. Peace is shifting from looking at what the world values to truly saying this is what Christ values and I'm going to walk in this. So how do we defeat the oppressive thoughts and emotions? We define ourselves not by how the world defines us, but how God defines us. How do we have peace from overwhelming expectations? We define ourselves, again, not by what the world puts on us, but what God calls us to. How do we conquer overtaxing busyness? Easy, we stop. We breathe. We sit with God. We have clear mind and clear values, and that's what leads to rest. When we get to a point where we're thinking, what does God have for me? How does God call me to walk? But I think the best idea of peace is closer in our our, our nomenclature today, or our, our culture and practice, is this idea of harmony. Relationship, personal relationships kind of in sync. You know, when I thought about this, uh, my original thoughts, I thought I was going to talk about my wife. Because a lot of people tell you that, you know, you don't really know yourself until you get married, right? And I think that's true for most people. For me, though, it happened with my college freshman roommate. I didn't really know myself until I met someone who was more stubborn than I was. Until I met someone who was more passionate than I was. Until I met someone who was more ridiculous than I was, you know? And what's funny about our relationship is we, we, um, we lived together for a year. And for the last 17 years after that, we became better friends, What's fascinating, though, about my relationship with Mike is that, you know, I have a lot of friends who I can pick off right where I left. But what I love about my relationship with Mike is that we do things for each other that is just, you know, it's just, it doesn't make sense to other people. Now, Mike is a Boston Red Sox fan, and I know he's a true Red Sox fan because he was a Red Sox fan before they won anything, right? Um, and the other proof is Mike had a Red Sox T-shirt. Um, I'm glad this is on the Internet. I can't wait to send it to him. But Mike had a Red Sox T-shirt that I believe was older than both of us combined, Right to say the shirt had holes in it would be a compliment, right? Um, so he's a hardcore Red Sox fan, and years ago, before the Red Sox won anything, um, they had a series where they were playing the Yankees, their arch nemesis, right? And they, they they were down three to one in the series. First one to win four games wins. Red Sox win game five. Like, oh, okay. Mike's dad decides that you know I'm gonna buy tickets to game seven, and I was like. Red Sox fans have all this faith in the world. As a Mets fan, I know it's not going to end well. You know, there's no need to buy tickets. Just save your money. Red Sox win game six. We then call Mike's dad. Hey, you're in Florida. We're at Messiah College. We're technically closer to New York. Can we get the tickets? And the good Lord worked some miracle, and he couldn't get off work, so we got the tickets. And then in the greatest temptation I faced as a 17-year-old. This is before the World Wide Web and Al Gore's internet as we know it. But we started getting random phone calls, people offering. And remember, we're college kids. I remember one guy offered us $4,000 for these two tickets. I'll tell you, Red Sox fans are crazy. Now, I will say it was not my ticket. It was his father's ticket that was gifted to him. However, I thought about this. And I said, Michael, it's $4,000. We're also, the tickets are in the bleachers of Yankee Stadium, and, and this is the old Yankee Stadium. Now, if you go into Yankee Stadium, it's a lot more expensive and corporate. The old bleachers of Yankee Stadium, you say the wrong word, you might get hurt, you know? That's where we're going in, and we're two 17-, 18-year-old kids going into this stadium. I, I said, Michael, it's $4,000. We're going to give up $4,000. I don't even, you could just tithe to me. You can keep $3,600. i will keep 400 you know? But, like... Can we just watch it from inside where it's nice and safe, you know? And, and, and he said no, you know, because he's a Red Sox fan. So we go to this game, and if you're a Red Sox fan, you might remember this game. But the good Lord would have it that we, I looked at Michael, and he came to my, we were roommates, and he got dressed. And I looked at him, and I was just like, we're going into the mouth of the beast, the bleachers of Yankee Stadium, and you have Red Sox gear from head to toe. Like, you are going to die. But here's where our sync and our harmony of relationship happens. I look at him and I says, well, at least we get to die together. (laughs) And as a Mets fan, I actually borrowed all his Red Sox gear and I put it on. And we were going to go into the mouth of the beast together. Harmony. Relationship. So we go in and the good Lord would have it. If you remember this game, the Red Sox led the entire game, which was perfect for the bleachers at Yankee Stadium because, you know, they said some nice little choice words to us. But all we had to do was what? Look at the scoreboard. And I really think this was God protecting us. You, know, you might think it's not, but I believe it. Because they couldn't say anything to us for about eight and a half innings, you know, and then nine innings. And then Pedro Martinez happened, which the Red Sox fans know. But even worse than that, though, the Red Sox were winning the entire time until there was a guy by the name of Aaron Boone, who coincidentally is now the manager of the Yankees. Aaron Boone comes up to the plate. And me, you might not know this, but as a Mets fan, I can always tell when something's about to go wrong. I'm a prophet, if you will, when it comes to sports. I said to Michael, this is what I hate the most about the Yankees. It's never the superstars that beat you. It's the guy who was a bum all season, who just came off the bench. He's going to beat you. And Michael, as a cocky, if you will, Red Sox fan says, it's Aaron Boone. He's not even that good. Fast forward 30 seconds later, Tim Wakefield throws a knuckleball. The ball is hit by Aaron Boone down the left field line. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, this is not good. This is not good. And in the closest I've ever experienced to true jubilation, 50,000, 60,000 people lose their minds, right? Aaron Boone hits a home run. The whole place is celebrating and jumping up and down. And I look down on my brother, and he's fighting the tears. And I, as a good old Mets fan, I said, just let it go, man. Just let it go. It's fine. Just let it all run, you know? So we have this great relationship where we're in sync with each other. But the idea of being in sync means things as they should be. So when we understand the biblical concept of peace, we must remember that it's more than tranquility, it's more than silence, it's more than calm. It's more than the kids being in bed so you can breathe. It's more than the absence of war or conflict or telling a Canadian their, their coffee's terrible. It's more than rest, Rest from the world, rest from yourself, rest from oppressive thoughts, rest from overwhelming expectations, rest from overtaxing busyness. It's more than Sabbath. Peace is the world as it should be. This is why Paul, when in writing to the the church around Ephesus, he said to them, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ Jesus, we can have peace with God. Because the son, the baby that came, because of the life that he lived, because the death that he died, because he's raised again and sits on the father's right hand, we can have peace with God. The world can be as it should be as we daughters and sons of the king can come back home again. We can have peace with God if we choose to believe. But also because of Christ, we can have peace with each other. Now, I had a teacher one time and a mentor who said, what I love about the cross is it's not just, you know, up and down. You also got to remember the, the, the side to side. And I was just like, well, that's deep. What are you talking about? And what she meant was simply this. Your peace with God isn't just about your relationship with you and God. It also matters your relationship with each other. So we can have peace with each other. Paul also writing to the Ephesians and to us this morning says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's possible in this world that lives to separate us. It's possible in this world that defines us and separates us and pulls us apart. It's possible in this world of brokenness that we can bring healing. It's possible in this world of differences that we can be one. It's possible in this world that tells you all the things you're not, that you can come home again and you can have peace with your sister and your brother. It's possible that you can be one together in Christ. Be compassionate to each other. Be kind to each other. Forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Jesus didn't just come to save you. He came for the world. And part of the saving of the world is that you're supposed to bring peace to the world around you. It's not just about you and God. It's about you and your sister. It's about you and your brother. Peace in Christ. We can have peace with each other. But also if the world is about how it should be, we can have peace with creation. Because Jesus came, Paul writing now to the Colossians and to us this morning says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our God is redeeming this world. And that's not just the souls, that's the trees, that's the animals, that's the stars. Everything about this world, God's going to redeem. Remember, scripture reminds us that heaven comes down to earth. That's the story of Advent, isn't it? That's why Advent is not just about the baby in the manger, but Jesus coming again in glory because heaven always comes down to earth. And if God is redeeming this creation, don't you think it's time his children be a part of it? So peace is peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's peace with your sister and your brother through Jesus Christ. It's peace with the world around you through Jesus Christ. And when I thought about this biblical concept of peace, I thought about one person, Anna. Because I believe in these three verses, we find someone who is what God's peace looks like. When we think about Anna, I believe strongly she is what God's peace looks like. You know, oftentimes we talk about major prophets and minor prophets, and we think because they wrote a lot, they must be major. But I would venture to say that of all the prophets to live, Anna mattered a little bit because she gets to be in the Christ story, amen? She might only have three, story, three verses, but we learn a lot from these three verses. And she gets to be called prophet when Jesus comes into the world. So who is this Anna? First of all, her name, like Mary, means favor and grace. So we learn from the beginning, remember in the Bible, names meant something, right? Um, Shell and I, when we got married, it was funny, Shel was like, she would just pick names out of the hat, and I was like, "Shell, you have to understand, my people are from 96 South Carolina. It's a place. It's not much there, but it's a place. And then, you know, we earned some freedom, and the South was like, hey, you should go back to Africa. We said, okay, that sounds great. You know, this whole Jim Crow and slavery thing, not working for us. So we went back. But in Liberia, one of the things I've learned about my family is, honestly, we use like 10 to 15 names, right? If you go to a family reunion and you said, Daniel, I am not kidding, you'd be talking about 15 different people. You know, we will ask you, which Daniel do you want? Do you want Danny? Do you want Daniel? Do you want Dan? Do you want D. Francis? Do you want D. Francis Jr. or the third, right? We use the same 10 to 15 names because in our culture, and I say it's biblical, names have to mean something. This idea of just picking names out of the hat doesn't work in our culture. So Anna's name meaning favor and grace matters, and it means something. In fact, in the Old Testament, that name appears as Hannah. We use both of them because we're special today. So we use Anna and Hannah. But the other thing I started talking about is Anna is a named prophet. She's one of the few named female prophets in all of the scriptures. So you have Miriam, who we know is Moses' sister. We have Deborah, who was a judge. We have Huldah, who's my favorite, right? I think God has a sense of humor because her husband was actually the tailor. Like, he was the fashion designer. And and Huldah was the one who interpreted the scriptures. I love that. And she's also important because when Jesus goes through the temple gates, he enters through the Holder's gates, so, which is amazing. So Holder's a person to know. But then we have unnamed people like Isaiah's wife It's called a prophet. Philip's daughters are called a prophet. But the thing I love about Anna being a prophet is when you look at her life, you realize that it's not just about what she says. It's about what she does. And her life is defined by fruit. And it teaches us again and again that peace with God isn't just for you, it's for the world. So Anna, this lady with favor and grace, was named a prophet, one of the few female prophets named in the Bible, and her life bore fruit. The other thing that's fascinating about Anna is her tribe gets named. There's only about three or four people, and Jesus is one of them, who gets named about their tribe in all of the New Testament. So I was thinking to myself, that's got to be important right? Like if she's from the tribe of Asher, like why is that in there? And you know, some of us get lost on YouTube at one o'clock in the morning. I get lost in commentaries, right? And that's what we do for fun in my house, right? I said, we got to find out why this matters that she's from Asher, because if it wasn't important, it wouldn't be there, right? So we started digging, I started digging, I found out that this is what Moses, first of all, Moses on his deathbed blessed all the tribes of Israel. That's what he said about the people of Asher. He says. Your strength will equal your days. He gave him a blessing of long life. He says, your strength will equal your days. And I was like, well, that makes sense because Anna's old. So that's kind of cool. And I thought that was it. Then I did some more digging. I found out that the people of Asher were part of the northern kingdom. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll realize that because of David's sin and because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom was split into two. Right? And ten tribes left and formed another kingdom they called the northern kingdom, and that kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians. And one of the things the Assyrians did, it was, it was atrocious, right? It was war. War is never good, right? One of the things that they did is they, they killed a lot of people. They forced them into slavery. And then they literally worked to wipe out their line. So even Israelites today, Jewish people today, talk about the lost tribes of Israel. Because they believe when Assyria came along, whereas before you could say, I'm from Naphtali or Gad or Reuben, Right? The Syrians were like, no, 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 you're a Syrian now. You lose your culture. So I think it's fascinating that hundreds of years later, Anna, this old lady who's a prophet, still identifies with her people from Asher. Because what it tells you is she's not just a survivor, but she's a survivor with favor. That her culture matters, and she held on to it, even though the world tried to take it away from her. The other thing about Anna that's really, really fascinating to me is she's old. She's very old. How old is she? We don't know. The Greek is actually tricky here because I think Luke, Luke was probably bored when he was dictating this. So he's like, I'm going to make them think about this for thousands of years, you know. But the Greek literally only says, you know, she was married for seven years and, and she was a widow of 84 years. So if you think about that, I could have two meanings. She's a widow of 84 years. So the first part is the easy one. What? She's 84 years old. But then if you're like, wait a second, she's a widow of 84 years. So last week we found out Mary, when she was betrothed, was about 14 years old. So that was probably the common age of being married back then. So if Mary was 14, let's just say Anna was 14. She was a widow after seven years, so that's 21. And if she's a widow for 84 years, that's 105 years old? And the funny thing is no one knows right? People are like, well, she's 84. No, no, no. she's 105. I'm like, she's old, right? And I think that matters because one of the things I've missed in the Christ story, we focus so much on the baby, we sometimes forget the faithful people who held on to the faith and waited for the Messiah and how their old age was a life defined by faith. So she was either 105 years old or 84 years old, but she held on to the faith. And how do we know this is that she was faithful. She lived in the temple. The scripture actually says, you know, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day. It's kind of like the family member who don't leave, right? When, the, when Moses separated the tribe of Israel and when they went to the promised land, they all got land except the Levites, right? Because they were supposed to be the priests, so they had cities that they can go to. But the Levites, I mean, if a Levite was a priest and came to the house, you had to accept them, right? But what I love about Anna, though, is that her life was so defined by faith that the temple, which was not a place for women... Remember when Jesus kicked the people out of the temple, it's because they were being oppressive to anyone who was disadvantaged, anyone who was a woman, and anyone who wasn't a birth Israelite, right? The temple was not a place for women, but Anna's testimony was so powerful that the men who led the temple gave her a room in the temple, they looked at her life of faith that's defined by faithfulness to God. And they're like, we got the Levites, but you can get a room, Anna. You get a room here. Her life was defined by faithfulness. How do we know it says she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Another thing we learned about Anna in these three short verses is that she was led by the Spirit. She had to be because she was so deeply in love with her God that God shows up in her everyday scenes. You know, Anna, when she woke up that morning, I like to think it was a Thursday. It probably wasn't, but there's only seven days a week, you gotta pick one. So I like to think it was a Thursday that Anna woke up. When she woke up that Thursday morning, there's no way she thought, you know, today I will meet the God of the world in the form of a baby. But I think that's a reminder to us that God shows up in our everyday scenes if we're connected to him. That God shows up Not just when we least expect it, but all the time, we can have divine appointments. If we're living by God and being led by the Spirit, God will make us have these divine appointments. What I love about this divine appointment is that Anna is so in tune with the Spirit, so led by God that even though she's there to pray and fast, when she sees the salvation of Israel, she stops and she gives thanks to God. And she blesses him. What's fascinating in this passage is Simeon and Anna are paired together. And Simeon might have been a priest. All we know is he's righteous and devout. So Anna would have outranked him, right? She outranked the male Simeon because she's definitely a prophet. But what's fascinating is that Simeon blesses and gives this great blessing about Jesus and to Mary about being the salvation for the world. What I love about Anna is when she looks at the salvation of the world, she stops and just give thanks to God and I think there's room for both of them and I think that's beautiful we don't all have to worship the same we don't all have to be in tune with the spirit the same way there's room to proclaim and to worship like Simeon did and next year we'll do Simeon you know somebody at the end of first service was like you plan. I was just like it ain't that hard this year we're doing the women next year we'll do the men the rest in between we'll figure out right so we'll talk about Simeon more in detail next year. But what I love about Anna is when she saw this baby, when she saw God in the flesh, she couldn't help but be thankful. The last thing I love about Anna is she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. What's fascinating is that Anna was an evangelist. Right? But you can't miss the clauses here. A lot of times we think about evangelists like, well, we got to tell all the world, which is true. But here's the thing. God is going to save the world. God just wants you to help him save your world. Right? Anna was an evangelist, but look at who she went to. She spoke about the child to all who... We're looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Anna might have been 105 years old, but she was brilliant. She knew that in her culture, with this oppressive Roman Empire, with the Jewish church, with the Jewish synagogues and leaders rejecting the Messiah, she knew that I'm gonna go to the people who are waiting for Jesus. I'm going to the people I know who want the Messiah because I've seen the Messiah. God's gonna save the world, but God wants you to help. Him save your world. And we'll flesh that out a little bit before. So what's happening in this passage is you have Mary and Joseph, and they're taking Jesus to the temple. It was something that was very, very common back then. Every Jewish family had to take the baby to be presented in the temple. As part of this, uh, Jesus being the firstborn, I, I I think this is funny. This is just how my head works. I think it's funny that the God of the universe is the firstborn had to be consecrated to God. Take with that what you want, right? But he had to be consecrated to God, so he was the firstborn. But what's fascinating, though, is that the law allowed, you know, if you can afford it, you can offer a sacrifice of a lamb. Or if you couldn't afford it, there were doves and there were pigeons. So that little bit of detail tells us that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy, that they couldn't afford the lamb, but they were still faithful people. So they go and they present the child and they they meet Simeon and Simeon gives this great prophecy and this blessing and they're leaving the temple. And as they're leaving the temple on that Thursday, I think, morning, they run into Anna. The old faithful prophet has this divine appointment. For years and years, you know, after the first service, someone says, what I love about Anna is the statement on singleness. Because she was either single from about 21 to 84 or 21 to 105. But her life is not defined by how old she was. It's not defined by how single she was. It's not defined by all the things she liked. It's only defined by her faith in God. I think that's amazing. So when we think about peace, you know, I'm always trying to land the plane. I told you all, right? If peace from God, what then do we have from this morning as we think about the baby Jesus? What well, I think is this, peace from God, true peace from God, bears fruit for the world. We can't just be about having peace for me and mine. That's not why Jesus came. If you want true peace from God and you're exhibiting true peace from God, just like Anna, it's got to be for your world. And I think Anna teaches us six different things that we can see. The first one is simply this, Anna was chosen by God for her world. Anna was a prophet. It means that her life wasn't just about what she proclaimed, it was about the fruit that she bore. It means that people, you know, in the text we don't hear about her family or her kids, but what we know is that she was in the temple every single day praising God. That her faith was so deep and so sincere that even the men who controlled the temple was like, Anna, you get a room, you get to keep praising God, you get to keep helping people. They looked at her testimony, they looked at her faith, and they said, Anna, you're chosen by God. And she bore much fruit. And I think about all the people we are going to meet in heaven who might have engaged Anna at 21, or at 41, or at 71, or at 101. Think about all the people she impacted in those 84 years of showing them what worship with God looks like, what love of God looks like, what depending on God looks like. Can you imagine being a widow, 21 years old in that culture? And yet she had 84 years of evidence that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is true. So the question becomes, if Anna was chosen by God for her world, the question to you this morning becomes, what has God chosen you for, for your world? Because God wants to save the world, but God wants you to save your world. There's a difference. And all I'm saying this morning is that who you know is who you know. Who you know is who you can impact. Who you can impact is who you know. All right, think about that. Your best friend in the world. You can tell them God is good. And I guarantee you it'll be much more than I'm telling them God is good. Your father, you can tell him that God will always be there. And I'm telling you, it matters more that it's coming from you than it's coming from me. Your sister who's struggling, you can tell her God will never leave you or forsake you. And I guarantee you it means more coming from you than coming from me. God's going to save the world, but God needs you to save your world. You only know who you know. And that's who God calls you to. You only know What you know, and that's what God calls you to give. Anna was chosen by God for her world. So, again, my first question is what has God chosen you to do for your world? Second thing about Anna that I love is that she was created by God for her world. What I mean by this is Anna is not just a survivor who was this widow from 21 to 84, 105. But she was from the tribe of Asher, which to this day, a lot of people in Israel still believe this tribe was wiped out. But she's a survivor with favor. And what I love about Anna, I think the reason that little line by Asher is in there is because her story matters. She was a widow, yes. She was a daughter of Asher, yes. She knew suffering, yes. She knew aloneness, yes. She was single, yes. But more than that. She fully gave herself to God and let God use her story. Last week we shared about how it's important for all of us to tell our story. So just like only you can go to your world, only you has your story. And God wants to use your story. One of the things my generation is trying to teach the church is that they can argue with our facts. But I'm telling you, they cannot argue with your spirit. They can say, I don't think God exists. But we can say, I can tell you how God has changed me. They can say, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And you can say, you should see me at 17. Our stories matter. And I think that's what we learned about Anna, is her very DNA, her story is chosen by God, that she's going to be a survivor. She's going to be a widow, but she's still going to serve God. She's going to be single all these years, but she's still going to serve God. She's gonna be 105 years old, but she's still gonna to go to the temple every single day to fast and to pray and to bless people. She's gonna be a daughter of Asher, the tribe that's wiped out, but still get to tell people, You think life is bad? God and the Assyrians might have wiped out my whole tribe, but I'm still standing. You think God doesn't provide? I was 21 years old and I lost my husband, but I'm still standing. You think God isn't good? Why am I 105 still in this temple? And a story mattered just like your story matters. So just like God is calling you to your world, to who you know, to who you can impact, God wants to use your story to help tell the world about him. So the question becomes, how has God crafted you and your story to serve your world? How has God crafted you and your story to serve your world? The last one, I was, I was actually going to take this out, but I kept reading it in commentary, so I was like, well, we're going to say it. But this is what you put on the seatbelts. Multiple commentators point out about how Anna aged gracefully. And what they mean by that is, you know, in our culture, for example, when we say someone aged gracefully, it's always like almost negative. It's like, well, you're good for 105. You know, you aged gracefully. I'm shocked, but you're still here. But I think if we break down the word graceful, we get a new meaning, don't we? She aged full of grace. You know, in our culture, we we, we, we very much overemphasize and overvalue youth. I think we all know that. We overvalue youth, and we don't value wisdom that comes from years. But the other thing in our culture that we got to be careful for is we sometimes, because of our age... We allow things that shouldn't be in the life of a Christian. We grow old, but we grow bitter. We grow old, and we think because of experience, we're allowed to be more cynical. We're allowed to be defined by our bitterness and our cynicism. And that might be a hard word. It was a hard word to me. I'm 35 years old. You know what my dreams in life is to be an old black man. You know why? Because one, there's not a lot in my family, right? But then two, though, old black men do whatever they want. Like, that's what I'm looking forward to, you know? Like, you do something on my lawn, I'm a pacifist, but I'm looking forward to throwing my cane at you. I'm just kidding. Not really. But again, though, in our culture, even though we overvalue youth and we don't, we don't value our old people, we also let this lane where we think that because we grow older, we grow familiar, we're allowed to be defined by our cynicism or even our bitterness, right? But Anna aged gracefully. What I love about her story is that there's no bitterness in her story. She's not complaining about being widowed for seven years. She's not complaining about being single for 84 years. She's not complaining about being on her own till she's 105. What is defined by Anna? She's full of hope. She does good to those she meets. She's well-adjusted. She knows the world. This is amazing to me. Either she's 84 or 105, but she knows there's people who are waiting for the Messiah, and there's people who will kill me for saying Jesus the Messiah, and she knows, right? She's well-adjusted to her times. Other thing about Anna is she's engaged in her world, and here's the one I love. She's useful to the Lord. May we all age gracefully. May we all fight off the bitterness that seems to come with experience. But may we all be people who truly and truly look like Anna, that our life is defined as being full of hope, as being doing good to those we meet, as being well-adjusted and knowing the world around us, as being engaged with our world, and most of all, as being useful to the Lord. So the question is, Anna just grew in grace. She grew in favor. She grew with the peace of God. Your question now is, are you aging gracefully? When When people look at your life, Do they see the love of God? Do they see the grace of God? Do they see you being useful for the Lord? Do they see you being faithful to the Lord? What do they see when they look at you? Because we're all called to look more like Anna than to what this world thinks age looks like. And yes, every day on this side of heaven is a blessing, but every day on this side of heaven, you're to be a blessing. Are we aging gracefully? Anna was characterized by her love for God. Now, I used to think when I I get eulogized, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back and I happen to die, I'll be in heaven. It'll be great. But when I get eulogized, I used to think that I want to be eulogized like David, a man after God's own heart. But I think Anna got a good case, too. Because what she, how we characterize her is that she loved and served God every single day. That's amazing. She's not just chasing God's own heart. She had fruit that proved that every single day she served God and loved God. To me, that's a greater eulogy. If people can look at you and they characterize you as someone who loved and served God all of your days, that's what we should be working towards. Anna was faithful. A bunch of commentators called her the worship workaholic. Her whole life is defined By giving praise to God. Her whole life is defined by serving God. Her whole life is defined by by praying and fasting. She's a worship workaholic. And this one's easy. How is your life defined? Is your life defined by what you have or what you don't have? Is your life defined by what you've done or what you haven't done? Is your life defined by the gifts that God's given you, the resources he's blessed with? Or is your life defined simply by worship of God? Because all those things will pass away, won't they? Age might take your youth. But the resources, everything that you build up in this world will probably burn away when a new heaven and new earth comes. So it's not about what you have or don't have. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It's simply this. Anna was defined by worship for God. Is that what defines you? When you look at your life, and this is not just when you look at your life, when other people look at your life, do they say, man, that's my sister. She is full of grace and mercy and compassion and love. This my brother, and he loves and worships God every single day with all of his being. Is that how we're defined? Because if it's not, my sisters and brothers, we've got work to do. And it's okay that we've got work to do because we can go to the Lord and say, God, I'm not there, but here I am, send me. It's okay if we have work to do because I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. It's okay. We have a God who's going to make you perfect because he's going to make you in the image of his son. So you have to say, is my life defined by love of God? Is my life defined by mercy? Am I growing in grace? Are you a worship workaholic? Last two things about Anna that I love is that she was so led by the Spirit that she had this divine encounter. You know, this is a season of gift-giving. And one of the things we forget in gifts is that you have to receive the gift. Now, I had a mentor who we did a, a club for, for kids 12 and under, and as the veterans, we knew this trick, and it happened. Every Friday night, he would pull out a dollar. I'm old, y'all. Back then, a dollar was a lot of money. He'd pull out a dollar, and he'd say, who wants a dollar? And to a person, 99% of the new kids would be like, But what do I have to do for the dollar? What do you mean, who wants a dollar? Are you sure you want to give me a dollar? But then there was always one kid, right? There was always one kid who was like, who wants a dollar? Okay, before he could finish the sentence, he snatches it out of the hand, right? When we think about the gifts that God gives us, not just his son, we have to accept the gift. I think one of the things that we who've been Christians for a long time don't do a good job is accepting the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've given your life to him, the Holy Spirit lives within you. But have you accepted that gift? And what I mean by that is, have you chosen to surrender to the Spirit? Because you have to do it every single day, in every action, in every interaction, in every minute, in every hour. You have to surrender to the Spirit. You have to take the gift of the Spirit. Because as long as you're on this side of heaven, you can choose what you want and not what God wants. But if you surrender to the Spirit, I guarantee you, that you will have divine encounter upon divine encounter upon divine encounter. You will bump into people that God brings into your life that you'll be able to bless. You'll wake up on a Thursday morning just going about your business and bump into somebody that you're going to give a blessing to. And you just might wake up one morning. You just might wake up and see the salvation of Jesus Christ. And I had so many divine encounters that it makes us ask this simple question. Where is God already moving? And how can I join in? Because if you're in tune with the spirit, God sometimes leads you to the places that are like deserts. One of my favorite stories in all the scriptures is Philip and the Ethiopian. The reason I love this story to be frank is that the Ethiopian and um, the classical Greek, the Ethiopia they talked about is really sub-Saharan Africa. So what I love about this story is that it's really Philip and a person who looks like me. So I think that's cool. You might not, but I do. But Philip has this encounter, right, where God, he's so in tune with the Spirit, the Spirit of God said, I'm going to send you. And Philip says, okay, and he goes, right? But where he goes is kind of, you can use like the old frontier western movies, right? It's these places that you go and you're like, if you squint real hard, you can see the old outline of a town or a busy center that used to be, right? But it's also like the middle of the road. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, where don't you want to be by yourself? The middle of the road, right? The reason there's a good Samaritan is because he was walking down the road, and then and, and he got beat up and robbed, right? So this is where God sends him to. He's in tune with the Spirit, and God says, go, and he goes, right? And I think sometimes we're so worried about, like, what to say, what to do, what can I do? But what I love about this story is that Philip goes, And this Ethiopian, this African man is in his coach and he's coming down and he's going through the the palace of the Kandakee and the the queen of Ethiopia, Sub-Saharan Africa. He's going in this cage, right? And of all the scriptures to be reading, he happens to be in Isaiah 53. Right? We missed that part of the story. Like, he could have been in Leviticus and then Philip would have been in trouble, right? He could have been in Deuteronomy and it's just like, well, you know, we're trying to explain. But he's in Isaiah 53, and the guy says, what does this mean? And what I love about this story is God then, almost you can feel Philip's relief when he realizes that I didn't know why God sent me in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know this man was coming my way. But the only thing I have to talk to him is about Jesus that I know. We think about being in tune with the and looking forward to these divine encounters. May it be the same thing. You don't have to have the seminary degree. You don't have to have the perfect thing to say. You don't have to know it all. All you have to know is Jesus. And tell them about the Jesus that you know. Anna was led by the Spirit. Are we going to be led by the Spirit? And this last one is simply this Anna knew to whom she was called and served. God wants you to go to your world. And for some of us, that might mean going outside of Harrisburg, and that's wonderful. But for all of us, it means who is in your life that you can influence? Who is in your sphere of influence? Who has God put you in relationship with that you can speak peace into their life? You know, an African proverb says, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How is God going to save this world? One Christian at a time. Going to the people you know. I'd like to call up Pastor Estee and the, the worship team. We're going to close with a song I think we've sang a couple times during, um, the commute, oh, not community, during the offering. It's a song called Salam, which means peace. But What I love about this song, I think there's two or three times that we sing, you fill our lives with peace. And as we sing this song this morning, may we, may we be reminded that God has gifted us peace, not just for us, but to bear fruit for our world. That if you have peace with God, you should have peace with your sister and your brother. And that if you have peace with your sister and your brother, you should have peace with your world. And if you have peace with your world, you're going and you're loving and you're defined like Anna as a worship workaholic who loves and serves their God. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. We would love to pray for you for anything. If you don't know what this peace of God looks like and you want to choose to follow Jesus today, please come up. If there's something else that's on your heart that God is just weighing you down, if this world's weighing you down, please come up. We would love to pray for you. But as we sing this, may we be reminded this morning that God has granted us peace, but this peace is meant to bless the world. Let's stand and sing together.